Good morning to everyone here. Uh, this is my fourth or fifth trip down here, maybe my sixth. I've lost track. Um, I, am, I am one of your missionaries. My name's Steve Woodworth. I work with World Outreach and EPC. And I help to lead up I-10, which is, which is a short acronym for a long word. But in essence, what we're doing is that we are training leaders across the globe in unreached people groups. And, and, and what we do is that we land into these 10 countries that we've, uh, we've been asked, uh, invited to be a part of. And we work with the nationals there to help them train their own people. And so we're not interested in perpetually going in and doing the training ourselves. In fact, the longer I do this, the less teaching we actually do. And we get the joy of coming alongside these nationals that have a heart and a passion in places around the world where the gospel is exploding in such incredible ways that they don't have enough leaders for the church. You know, I was just in, in London meeting with some Iranian pastors a few weeks ago, and they estimate that today there's between 350 to 500,000 Christians in a place like Iran. Not a single seminary, not a single legal church anywhere. And so these, these young leaders then, who have been kicked out of the country themselves, decided they're going to continue the work of training up their own pastors by getting a satellite company. And, and using it as a TV show, that which they say, hey, at, at 4 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, we're just going to do this show called Church Planting. <laughs> and so all the church planters in Iran can get together in their houses, and they can huddle together, and every Wednesday at 4 o'clock for three or four weeks, they can essentially take a class. And then they smuggle those papers across the border into Turkey, and the, and the leaders from the seminary can pick it up in Turkey and bring it here. In the meantime, they're smuggling over to them these email scramblers and these micro SD cards that are edible, or they can throw them away if they get caught, burning up their hard drives. It's incredible. It's incredible work. So we get to be a part of that. And, and by extension, you get to be a part of it too. And this is the kind of, kind of relationship we want to have as missionaries. Come down every single year. By now, most of you have seen my boys. I try to bring at least one with me every time. Last year, I brought all three. And believe it or not, this year, we're back to just one again. So that's, that's how it's going to go. My oldest son, Luke, joined me on this trip. It's always a joy. I get to spend time with Tim uh, regularly. We're part of a, a small pastor's group, four of us that meet together every couple of weeks to pray and talk and think through life. I met him at GA. This is the kind of relationship we want to have uh, with each one of you. And so it's a real joy. It's a privilege to be here. You guys have been incredibly supportive. And through this series now, the, the, the story of heroes, uh, originally Tim had asked me to go through the book of Job. I said, you guys are still doing about 25 minutes that first service. I said, probably, probably going to go a different direction than the book of Job, okay? Um, and so we're going to take on Gideon this morning, who happens to be one of my favorite Old Testament guys. And think about what it means for us to be a hero that God can use through our weakness and through our surrender in this story. Uh, if you turn with me this morning, we're going to be in the book of Judges. Ironically, the second, the second least preached on book in all of the churches here. So uh, Revelation being number one, but the Judges, they don't get a whole lot of looks. There's not a lot of great moral lessons from the Judges, but we do get one in the story of Gideon. So we're going to be in chapter six. Um, we're going to be uh, in and out of all different verses throughout that entire chapter. But let me begin with this, <clears throat> a story, an illustration of, of where we're headed today. That in 1918, there was this small baby boy that was born in a, in a little farmhouse, a dairy farm down in North Carolina. And, and growing up, he was a bit of an outcast, a bit of a rowdy boy. And in fact, in one time, when he had, he had gone to this outdoor uh, uh, kind of a tabernacle uh, conference, 
and became a Christian and then began to look for fellowship. And so in this small little town in North Carolina, he went to the local church. And, and at that time, it was very much like a, like a regular church in which you had to join. You had to become a member of the youth group. And so they did the interview and whatnot with him. And they decided this young man was a bit too worldly to be hanging around with the rest of our kids. And so he wasn't even allowed to join the local youth group. Um, he sensed a call to ministry, so at first he went to Bob Jones University, and after the first year, the president called him into his office and sat him down and said, son, you've got a couple of choices here. You can either drop out or you're about to be expelled, okay? And so he did. He eventually dropped out, and he went down to this small little uh, fellowship, this Bible college down in Florida. And it was down there that he says in his own words, out on the 18th green one night, there was a golf course adjacent to the, to the campus there. He was out walking one night, and he says on the 18th green is when he knew that he was being called the full-time ministry of preaching the gospel. And preach he would to kings and queens and millions upon millions of people from every race and every ethnicity, from every social class, drug addicts and prime ministers alike all over the world. And last February... The world said goodbye to the life and legacy of Billy Graham. That's Billy Graham's story. And he would tell you in his own words that he was an unlikely hero. And there wasn't anything about his, his coming out into the world that would have given any of us any hint or sense that this was going to be what many people consider today one of the greatest evangelists in the entire 20th century. This young boy born into a small family in a dairy farm in the middle of North Carolina. And Gideon is very much like that for us as well. That he is an illustration of the fact that God is about the business of using the weakest and the least. That God's own story, as we'll get to at the end, is very much covered in that, that same sort of truth. That God is not about the pageantry. He's not about seeing things from our same perspective, from a human perspective, that when we would think, who is it that we want to go forth and be our hero? We think of the celebrities. We think of those with the strength, with the power, with the personality, with the intelligence. And yet in God's economy, oftentimes, it's just the opposite. So read with me here, um, for the sake of time, Let's read uh, chapter 6, verses just 11 through 16 to get an essence of this story. We read these words. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? We're all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But the Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. It's the word of the Lord. So who are these Midianites? Let's get our context first. What's so important about this? Well, if you, if you have read the first few books of the Bible, then you know that this is the season in which the Israelites have finally taken over some of the promised land. They've moved in to this land that the Lord had given them. Moses had passed it over to them. And in this place, they come across this tribe 
called the Midianites. And as a, as a bit of a housewarming gift, I suppose, the Midianites invite the Israelites to come on over and start worshiping their gods, the pantheon of gods they worship, the, the Asherah poles and the Baals and all sorts of idol worship. And so the Israelites begin to what we would call uh, you know, do syncretism. They would blend a little bit of what they were doing there in Israel and then bring it over here and do a little bit of worship over here. And before long, they had become so much a part of that culture that Midianites finally had them exactly where they wanted them. And they're able to begin to oppress them because once, once the Israelites had given up on the worship of their God, they lost the source of their power. I mean, they lost the, 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 the one who was going behind them and before them and, and, and conquering all of these lands around. God was no longer with them. And so the Midianites began to oppress them and enslave them. And one of the ways that they would do that is that they would head out into the croplands and they would just burn them. They would run through them on horses with torches in their hands and they would just scorch the earth. And they were starving them to death. And so where do we find Gideon? We find Gideon down in a wine press threshing wheat. So our first point today is that a hero is someone who knows God's strength is manifest in their weakness. That's a key aspect of what it means to be a hero in God's economy. Is someone who realizes, a man or a woman that realizes that God's strength is actually made perfect in our weakness. That's where it's manifest. So again, from a human perspective... When we see Gideon, we see a man who is scared to death. And if that doesn't seem to make sense to you, just think about this. What is it you're supposed to be doing in a wine press? It's like not a trick question. What are you supposed to do in a wine press? Make wine, right? He's clearly not making wine. He is threshing wheat. So this is the way you would thresh wheat. You would go out, you would collect all the sheaves of wheat, and then you would lay them down in this giant blanket, and you would trample on them a little bit to separate the kernels, and then you would toss them up in the air, and the wind would carry away the chaff, and what was good and what could still make bread would fall to the ground. And so here's the image here right now is that he's climbed down inside of a wine press to hide from the Midianites, and God finds him, like, trying to thresh the wheat. <laughs> Hiding inside of this so that he's not seen. That's, this is the scene right here, right? This is where God finds him, cowering and hiding and saying, I hope the Midianites don't find me. And, and the angel of the Lord comes to him. And what does he say to him? The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Mighty warrior. Right? Probably not the first phrase that you would think of when you would find Gideon hiding for his very life. And yet, the angel of the Lord recognizes him and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. This is a deep truth. We don't have time to go into all of it, but suffice to say this is that, that God sees the world and human history in a different way than we do, that, that he stands outside of time. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but it is incredibly important here for this part of the story that God sees everything from beginning to end. He stands outside of time. And so he sees the, the present as the end, as the beginning. He sees it all. And so when he comes to Gideon, what we see and what Gideon sees even of himself is a scared little man, right? He knows his frailty. He knows all of his insecurities. He knows that he doesn't want to go out there and confront the Midianites. He feels like he is useless before God. And yet God can see the end of the story as well as the beginning then when God came to Jeremiah, he said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Later on, the apostle Paul in Ephesians would say, he chose us, all of us, in him before 
the foundation of the earth. Again, it sort of blows your mind a little bit. It's hard to dive into it all the way here. But suffice to say this, for us to grasp and understand this, is that oftentimes the way that we, we read the Scriptures and we understand it chronologically is that, that God decided first, let's create this world, and then I'm going to figure out how to populate it. So I'll put some animals in, some birds, some fish, and then at the end I'll put in some humans. But the rest of the Scriptures declare that it's actually backwards, that God first had a people in mind. He says, before the foundations of the earth, I knew you. I chose you before I ever created the earth. And so I thought of you, I called a people to myself, and then I created a world to put them in. And so when God comes to Gideon, and he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. God is speaking to a man that he doesn't just see in the present moment, hiding from the Midianites, but the, Mid, but the Gideon that he saw before the foundation of the earth and the Gideon that he is going to see glorified for all of eternity. And there is a reality to that that is deeper than our current circumstances that each one of us needs to learn how to live into, that God does not just see us right now here in this present moment the way that I see you and the way that you see yourself. That God is going to watch your life from beginning to end and that at the very, very beginning, before you're in your mother's womb, he says, I knew you and I created you with a purpose. And that's how I see you. And now, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, I see you as my perfected son, my perfected daughter, that God comes to you and regardless of what you might see on the outside, God whispers to you, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But... Very much like you and me, Gideon can only see what he sees of himself. And so he argues with God. He corrects him. He says, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in my family. And the, and the way that this works then is that within God's economy then, he's chosen the 12 tribes, right? So we've got the 12 tribes. I can't name them all. Don't ask me to. But then within those tribes... You've got these clans, and there's a smaller, smaller groups of clans. And then within each one of these clans, there are individual families. That's the way it works. So what he's telling God, he says, okay, first of all, I'm from the tribe of Manasseh, which isn't even a great tribe of all the, tw of all the 12. And within that, I'm part of the smallest one of the clans. I'm in the smallest one. That means numerically. It means we really are the most useless ones. When everybody's going to battle, no one is calling up our clan. We're the smallest one. We're the least powerful. We're not very much help. And then he says, and even within that clan then, you've got my own family, and I'm not even top dog there. I'm the least in my family even. Okay? Not a great tribe. The weakest clan in all of them. And then even within my own family, I'm at the bottom. You got the wrong guy. Right? And all of those things are irrefutable. I mean, he's not just doing some sort of false humility. These things are true. He really is from the smallest clan, and he really is the weakest link in his family. These things are true, and yet God sees something different. Why is it? God says in verse 14, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not, saving, am I not sending you? And another time he says, the Lord answered him in verse 16, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. First of all, he tells Gideon something very encouraging and he says it to you and me as well. He says, go in the strength that you have. Go in the strength that you have. Whatever it is that, that God may be calling you to, 
that seems above and beyond your abilities, your, your, your current circumstances. You yourself might be the person who's threshing wheat in the, in the uh, wine press, that you're scared to go out to those places where God has called you to, to those things in your life that seem like giant walls and obstacles and things that will never be, never be fixed. And God is saying, first of all, go in the strength you have. Go in the strength that you have with all of your weaknesses, with all of the things as you are right now. Go in the strength that you have. I'm not asking you to do something that is beyond the means that you have. I simply want you to go as you are right now. As is often true in many instances of life, if you wait until you feel like you are ready, you'll never do it, right? You'll never do it. And the same is true in God's economy. He's saying, I'm not asking you to wait until you're the perfected Jesus Christ to go out and do these things. Go in the strength that you have. Why is it that we can be that bold? And he tells us, number one, I am sending you. And number two, I will be with you. He says, that's all you need. Okay? Whatever it is that God is calling you to in the economy of God right now, he says, you know these two things. You can go in the only strength that you have. You go as yourself right now because I am sending you. And I will be with you. And there's something dynamic about that. I see it all the time, even in my own boys. There's something about just being in the presence of dad sometimes, less so now as he's almost bigger than me. But there was a time when they were little and they thought I was like a superhero. And now they know different. But there was a time where just to be around dad, there was a sense of security, right? That they would do things that they wouldn't normally do. They would try things they wouldn't normally try because dad was there. There was a sense of, of being emboldened to do it. You know, even now, I travel about 100 days a year, and there's a lot of times that I'm gone. And it doesn't matter how safe of a place we live in. It doesn't matter how wonderful our neighbors are, and they come and, and take care of my family. There is something unique about dad walking through that door and knowing that that next night dad is going to be in the next room. I obviously can't do a whole lot. Someone comes running through with a shotgun. But there's something about what my, what, what my family thinks because simply dad is with us. And that's the same for Gideon here. He says, look, I can go in the strength that I have for two reasons. Number one, dad has told me to go. Number two, he's actually going to be with me. He's going to be with me. I can do greater things. And the same is true of you and I. God chooses to work through the weakest and the least also because he wants the glory and he wants the honor. And it's for those that know their weaknesses. It's for those that know their limits. It's for those that know their inadequacies in which God gets the most glory, which is exactly what he tells us next. We're on to chapter 7 now. You can turn there if you want to. Chapter 2, 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 2 to 7. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. And listen to what he says. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So Gideon says, yes. He says, I'm going I'm to move into this area. I, I have decided I will go against these Midianites. And first God says, yes, but you've got too many people. Because even now, with as many men as you have, he says, you're going to think that you're the one who did it. And that's just by default the kind of human nature that we have. That even if we contribute 1% to whatever it is that God has called us to, we will take the glory for that 1%. It's in our nature, right? And so God wants to create circumstances in our life in which there can be no shadow of a doubt that it is him and him alone that is going to get the glory. And so he comes again. He said, first of all, just do this. Tell the guys that if any of them are scared and want to turn around, they can. 20,000 men left. 
And then God comes again, and it's almost comical the way that God is speaking to him. He says, there are still too many men. (laughs) So take them down to the water. I will sift them there for you. And there the Lord told them, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lap with their hands to their mouth. And so next he says, okay, so you take these guys, you take what's left, you go on down to the river's edge and just have them drink and just observe them. And there's going to be those that get down on their hands and knees and they just lap like a dog. And there's going to be others that are a little more gentlemanly. And they're going to kneel down, they're going to take their hand. And it's notable, even there, that God is saying, take the ones that lap like a dog, right? Not the brightest of the bunch, probably, probably not, the, not the most gifted guys, right? These are just kind of the animalistic, primal guys who just like jump down on the road, get on their hands and knees and just start lapping up the water. God says, yeah, take those guys. Take those guys. 300, he says. Gideon started with 32,000 men, we are told in this story. And when he goes to battle, he's going to have 300. 300. The Midianite army he's going against is 120,000 men strong. He's got 300. 120,000 men, and now he's got 300. I mean, God has so whittled down the situation. He chooses the man who is threshing wheat in a wine press, scared of the Midianites, and gets him together with 300 guys who really don't have a sense of what they're about to do. The 20,000 that left knew what was coming, right? If you're scared, you can leave. Those guys leave. The guys who stayed, maybe not the brightest in the bunch, right? And so he takes these guys down to the water, and then the ones who get on their hands and knees, those are the ones you're going to go to battle with. So, So not only Gideon, who himself is scared to death, He's looking around and he's saying, and of everybody I could choose, probably not the first picks on my team, these 300 right here, right? They're like, let's do this, man. We're ready to go, right? 300. We don't have time this morning. We could do a whole series on Gideon. Gideon wins the war. Gideon wins the war. Through a crazy means, he goes into the middle of the night and they light torches and they, and they break all these pots and God confuses that army in the middle of the night so that they start running through their own tents killing one another. Gideon doesn't even have to do anything. He's got these, t- these trumpets blowing, this fire going. There's so much chaos that Midianites take care of themselves. It's a crazy story. But this is a snapshot of the greater story God is writing throughout the scriptures about choosing the weakest and about the least, even in our midst today. That if you look through the whole breadth of scripture, you'll see this is always God's way. That God never chooses the first child. Right, which is always the biblical mandate. It's always the way throughout history that God would choose the first. But he doesn't. Our God doesn't. He chooses Abel instead of Cain. And then right on down through history, he chooses Isaac instead of Ishmael. And Jacob instead of Esau. Joseph instead of all his brothers. He chooses Moses instead of Aaron. David, who's the runt of the family. When Jesus comes to earth, he chooses these 12 who are just fishermen and the hated tax collectors, the uneducated at the time. And one of our greatest missionaries ever was one who used to persecute the church. And Jesus himself, when he comes, how does he come? With the power, with the glory and the fanfare of being a king? No, he comes to this this small, poor family. In this really suspicious way, it seems like all these rumors are flying that he's a baby born out of wedlock even. And when he does finally come into this world, he comes in a feeding trough for an animal. 
again, surrounds himself with those 12 who in the end will all abandon him. Every single one of them. One of them will turn his back on him. The other one will actually turn him in. And Jesus will die all alone on the cross. This obscure man on a Roman cross. That's God's story. And he's still about the business today of you and of me. And he's coming to each and every single one of us. And he finds us in our own personal version of a wine press. That whatever it is that it is that you are afraid of today, that God is calling you out to this place in your life. And it could be a very, in a very personal and a deep way that God is calling you freedom from an addiction or offering forgiveness to a long-life person who has hurt you or he's calling you to reconcile family members, or he's calling you to step out into a new calling in life. Maybe you're afraid about finances or employment or about your kids, something else. God is calling you, and you find yourself right now in this place, hiding in the wine press, threshing wheat. And God comes to you as he did to Gideon, and he says, I am with you, mighty warrior, because my son... My son has gone ahead and he has reconciled the sons and the daughters to the fathers. And now all that were weak can be made strong. All that were afraid don't have to live in fear anymore because I am with you, he says. That you can fully surrender, that you can fully embrace who I am as the Lord, as the Savior, as the King who is going out ahead of you because I am with you, he says. Go in the strength that you have, mighty warrior. I could share examples for the rest of the day about these mighty warriors that I have found all over the world. I'll tell you just one story. The young man, we had come out of church in Ethiopia. It's a three-hour service there, which is long enough for any of us. Come up. His name's Hailu. And I said, Hailu, what do you got planned for the rest of the afternoon? He said, I'm going to go visit some friends. I visit them every single Sunday. We're studying the Bible together. They're not believers. I said, that's excellent, right here in the village somewhere? And he said, no, over there. We're in the Rift Valley. And he points to this point on the ridge. And I said, every Sunday you go up there. He said, yeah. He said, it's about a three-hour bus drive up to the top of that mountain. And then I hike in for eight hours to this one little house that's over on the edge of the village, these non-believers there. And every week I go, I share with them the notes from the sermon, and we talk about Jesus. You know, and he gets home around midnight every night before he goes out to the field Eight hours a day, $8 a month. Every Sunday he does that. And God is about the business all over the world. If you go to India, you'll see that the first that have accepted the gospel there are the lowest in the caste system. It is the poorest. It is the people without that God is telling his story through because he wants the glory. He wants the glory. And even in our midst today, in this place, he is looking for Gideons, people who are weak enough to admit that they need a Savior, people who are weak enough to say... I can surrender all because, honestly, I have nothing else to lose. That's exactly who God is looking for. I have nothing to lose by giving my life and getting life in return from God. Let's surrender together. Let's pray. Father, we ask that today you would come and move around this place, Lord, that you are calling out Gideons even here today, that you are asking them, Lord God, would you come, would you surrender, would you be weak enough would you recognize your life as the least enough that you would be willing to come because I am sending you, because I am with you, that you would be bold enough to face the Midianites in your own life with me. Let me fight for you, he says, mighty warrior. In Jesus' name, amen.